This podcast was brought to you by withaim.co. Heading out to wonderful. Part 1. The Man Who Sins. Episode 2. The Arrival of Sylvan Glass. Charlie still stayed out by the river, except when it rained, and then he would stay after supper and sleep in the Hazlet's spare room next door to the boy, who kept a wary distance. Sometimes, on the nights out by the river, an unexpected storm would roll in in the night, and then he would crawl under the truck and he would think of Alma's clean sheets, crisply laid, smelling of laundry soap and sunshine. He liked it better out by the river. He was used to being alone, and the weight of all those bodies around him gave his sleep an uneasiness that left him tired the next day. Most nights and noons he ate what Alma made for him and was grateful that he wasn't living on sandwiches and Cokes anymore. Driving back to the river in the dark, he'd smoke and watch for animals. He liked to fling the burning end of his cigarette out the window and watch as it hit the road behind him, sending up a meteor shower of sparks receding in the distance. A sudden orange flare in all that racing blackness, the flint striking steel momentarily, but staying in his eyes long after the speeding truck had left the sparks behind. Such magic in the rearview mirror, his eyes, the speeding road, the sparks of a lucky in the dark. One time he was letting go of his cigarette just as his headlights lit up the still body of a deer, a big doe hit by a car, dead on the roadside, its eyes frozen in a fixed shock of terror. After that, every time he saw the shower of sparks, he thought of that dead deer and of the permanence of fear, of how, once it got into you, it never let go. He hoped it never got into him. He thought of his brother Ned, who always had that look of a deer frozen in the headlights, stunned. He hadn't seen Ned since right after the war, but now his face came back so clear and true he might have reached out and touched it. Now, every night when he threw the cigarette out the window and watched the display vanishing behind him, He said his brother's name to himself, and the shower of sparks became inextricably linked to his brother's face and name. One day, he would think, I'll see what he looks like now, grown. But then the sparks would be gone, and Ned would be gone too, until the next night, the next lucky on the blacktop. By the river... On his own land, he woke up every morning before sunrise, warm in his quilt and the rising heat and his usually pleasant dreams. The days seemed like good ones, mostly, and he rinsed his face and shaved in the river with a light heart. He was at the butcher's shop when it was just light, 
The thing he liked about being alone was that you could have things exactly the way you wanted them, with nobody looking over your shoulder. He used the hour before Will appeared to clean the shop, sweeping the wood floor and laying down fresh sawdust every morning. He sprinkled salt on the butcher block and scrubbed it down with a steel brush, scrubbing away yesterday's steaks and chops and roasts, yesterday's blood. He washed the marble counter with bleach and warm water. He checked in the cold locker to see what was there, what was needed, what was selling and what wasn't. It was too early for the radio. The distant, staticky station didn't come on until nine, so Charlie hummed to himself as he got everything ready. Old songs he remembered his grandmother singing to him, and songs he'd heard just yesterday on the radio, new songs out of Nashville. All this country music was new to him, and he liked it. It felt like home, the thin, high mountain voices singing about heaven and hell and betrayal and loss. There were songs about love and murder. Something about these songs made Charlie remember what it was like to be in love, made him want to feel that way again. He laid out the thick strips of country bacon in neat rows, bacon Will had smoked himself, so rich, so salty, and put sprigs of parsley around the cuts left over from yesterday. He made clean butcher's bows to put on yesterday's chops, flipped the steaks and roasts so they looked fresh, as though they'd just been cut. Will tried not to have a lot left over at the end of the day, but whatever was left, Charlie made it look brand new. Just as the other shops were beginning to open, Charlie uncurled the hose from the side of the building and washed down the sidewalk outside the store, the bricks turning from dusty rose to deep blood red, and drying in the sun to an ancient pink, the same color as most of the houses that lined the streets of the town. When Will appeared always with the boy, he brought Charlie a fried egg sandwich and a few strips of bacon wrapped in wax paper. And Charlie sat in the one chair and ate his breakfast while Will went over the figures, called the slaughterhouse, counted the money in the cash register, sometimes taking a huge roll of cash out of his pocket and either adding some to it from the cash register or peeling off some of his own to add to the drawer. Then he filled out his bank deposit slip and went across the street, leaving Charlie to eat in peace while the boy sat on the floor, still in his summer shorts and T-shirt, drawing faces in the sawdust. Will always brought two sparkling white butcher's aprons. He said Alma could get blood out of anything and Charlie would be just slipping his on when Will came back from the bank and the first customers opened the screen door, tinkling the bell. The black women came in first, ages 19 to 80, in their thin dresses, smelling of hand soap and galvanized washing boards, as though they wanted to get their business out of the way before the white women stirred from their houses. Sometimes they had extra shopping to do for the white women they worked for. 
They rarely came alone, usually with a friend or a cousin or an aunt, and some mornings they were all there at once, at the door before the sidewalk dried, and gone just as quickly, their neatly wrapped bundles in their hands. Sometimes they came with children, children who stared at Sam and didn't speak or say hello. They ordered as much, if not more, than any of the white women, and Charlie treated them all with the same respect, although he never learned any of their names and they didn't ask his. He looked at their hands, looking for wedding rings, and he called them miss or ma'am, depending on how he figured it. They never smiled, and he never smiled back, just looked at them with his honest eyes and treated the exchange as seriously as they did, watching as they counted out the money for Will, sometimes in bills, sometimes in coins. Usually they were gone by the time the first white women came, and if they weren't, they stepped aside and looked away as the white women entered, then left, quickly, silently fanning themselves with paper fans from the funeral parlor or the Methodist church, the women of the town came. It wasn't that there were more customers since Charlie had started working at the butcher shop, since the customers were basically every woman who lived in the town, along with a few single men. But their visits seemed more social, and they started to buy just for the day or just for their midday meal, so they could come back tomorrow, or even later in the afternoon. Most of the women had electric refrigerators now, so they could have shopped for a whole week, but they chose not to. There were some, a few, not many, and mostly Negro, who had ice boxes, and there was still an ice man who made his dwindling round of the town every two days, hefting a massive block of ice with pincers, the sweat showing between the shoulders of his shirt. Even as he stepped out of the frigid air of the back of the truck, his huge forearms glistening as he carried the blocks into the houses to put them into the bottoms of the oak boxes lined with tin. One man came in every day, a fat man Will called Boaty, although anyone else who was in the shop at the time called him Harrison or even Mr. Glass. He was about the same age as Will, although it's hard to tell with fat people, and they treated each other the way men do who've grown up together all their lives, watching as their lives, once so identical, changed paths and led one this way that one another. Charlie Beale, this is Bodie Glass. Uh, sorry, Harrison. Harrison Boatwright Glass. Morning, Mr. Glass. Good to meet you. Harrison and I were babies in the cradle together. We were that, said the fat man. We did a lot of adventuring back in the day. Bodie doesn't trust his own wife to pick out his supper for him. My wife can cook anything, but she's not exactly what you'd call an early riser. And then it takes her about two hours to get ready to come into town, and by then all the good stuff might be gone. You always thought ahead, Bodie. Admirable quality. Always give Mr. Glass the best there is, Charlie. 
He worked hard for it, and he deserves it. Will couldn't help himself. And, uh, <clears throat> obviously, he deserves a lot of it. Bastard, said Harrison Glass. You always had a mean streak, Will. Not a mean bone in my body, Bodie. You've got the appetite a man your size ought to have. That's just a fact. Not an unkind thought in my head. Bodie Glass did get the best. And he didn't pay, just watched as Will wrote down his purchases in a book. And because he bought a lot, Will always gave him a little off although Bodie Glass didn't look like he needed any kind of discount on the things he paid for. Bodie Glass was the kind of man who told jokes like a nervous tick, often vulgar, but in mixed company usually just dumb old country jokes he'd heard on the Opry or read in the Grit paper. So old Tarkle McCorkle walks into Manly Brown's blacksmith shop the other day, and Manly's just finished pulling a red-hot horseshoe out of the fire and laid it on the anvil. This fellow walks over to the anvil, picks up the horseshoe in his bare hand, then puts it right back down again. Burned you, didn't it, says Manly. Nope, says Tarkle. Just don't take me very long to look at a horseshoe. He'd laugh so hard at his own joke you could see the back of his throat and his thick-coated tongue hanging out of his mouth. A man's man, some might have said. A buffoon, others might have called it more accurately. A fat clown. He usually came on his way to Stanton to take care of his business. Everybody treated him with a kind of deference, as though he, like Charlie, were a stranger to them even though they'd known him their whole lives. Nobody likes him, said Will one day after he'd gone. Sad. Not even me. Not anymore. He's no more like the boy I knew than Eleanor Roosevelt. And it ain't just because he's rich. He was a nice boy, big, but not like he is now. Now he's just plain gross. Got a hillbilly wife, he wears like a ring on his little finger. Nobody else would marry him, and God knows he tried. Imagine rich as he is, still nobody'd have him. Maybe that's what turned him so mean. His sharp in his dealings, don't treat people with respect. Skinned every man who had a hide in two counties. Thinks he's better than he is, and everybody knows exactly what he is. Just a fat, rich man who's forgotten everything he learned from his mother, who was a good Christian woman, rest her soul. One day we were friends. The next he decided I wasn't good enough for him. We'll get together next week, he'd say. But next week never came, and finally he stopped asking, and I stopped caring. That's a sad thing to watch your best friend turn into somebody you don't know anymore or even want to know. Still, you got to pretend. Make the best of it. The thing about small towns is you live with these people. See them every day. No point in fighting. Everybody's always just there every day, so you got to make your peace. And he spends good money. Still, sad. Just goes to show you,
that having a good name and coming from good people don't actually make you good people yourself. I don't know him from Adam anymore. Ever flung a whodunit across the room on the grounds of incompetent sleuthing? Ian Pierce hasn't, because he's never read a whodunit in his life. He still boasts that he could solve one, though. Listen and learn as this self-appointed crime guru attempts to guide a private investigator to the truth in an original murder mystery written by Tom Knight. Welcome to The Directed Detective. And that wife of his, just you wait. She's a piece of work. They all called him Mr. Beale, the white women. And he generally told them not to, every time, until eventually they all called him Charlie. Although he continued calling them by their married names, even though they asked him to stop. Charlie was a better butcher than Will. And the women were impressed although they didn't say anything, so as not to hurt Will's feelings. Charlie's steaks looked better, trimmed with just a fine, thin layer of fat at the edges, and he would tie up their roasts for them with twine so they looked tight and neat, covering the pork roasts with neatly laid strips of bacon. So Charlie cut the meat and charmed the ladies one by one, but more than charm... He treated every one, black and white, from the richest to the shoeless poorest, from dollars to dimes, with the same deference and shy kindness. And he won their hearts while Will took the money and read to Sam from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, read it to him cover to cover every day, even the captions on the pictures, everything from politics to sports and how to keep your stockings from running by keeping them in the freezer. Sam was crazy about sports, even sports he'd never seen, like tennis. And, of course, he liked the comics, which he could just about read for himself by now, even though he didn't start school for another year. He talked about Joe DiMaggio and Steve Canyon and Popeye and Harry Truman in exactly the same way as though they were people he actually knew, as though they might all be coming to Brownsburg any day now. His special hero was Jackie Robinson, and he talked endlessly about how Jackie could hit and run and play the field. A triple threat was the phrase he used. Although where he'd picked it up, nobody could say for sure. There are some things boys just know. At the end of Charlie's first work week, on a Friday in late August 1948, a woman walked into the shop, and that's when the story becomes more than just another story, becomes instead a tale that's passed down from father to son as a warning from mother to daughter in that year when the daughter first begins to dream of romance, the kind of romance seen in the flickering light of the movie screen. The lights go down, 
the movie starts, the silent flicker as the frames go through the sprockets, and even the most ordinary gesture becomes extraordinary. Everything stops, and something you can't explain begins. The bell over the door jangled, and everybody turned to see who was coming in, the way they always did. She walked silently into the butcher shop, and everybody stared at her, and they didn't turn away and start talking again, the way they usually did. And nobody, not one woman, said a word of greeting to her. Charlie had never seen her, not once, and he thought he'd seen everybody. It was obvious she was different from the other women. She had a country face, young, probably not much more than twenty, if that. She wore a wedding band and an engagement ring, so that much was clear. But she looked as though she'd stepped into the shop from another part of the world, from one of the cities Charlie had visited during his days and nights of travel. She wore a white linen dress. It was still before Labor Day, and such things still mattered then. A white dress with an olive-green belt at the trim waist, the neckline cut low with a certain sophistication and style that said she hadn't bought it anywhere near Brownsburg. Her lips were a crimson slash, her hair pulled up in gleaming blonde waves on top of her head, held with tortoise-shell combs studded with rhinestones. She wore dark sunglasses, a thing no other woman in the town even thought to own, and espadrilles tied with grosgrain ribbons around her ankles on her small feet. Her only other jewelry was a small gold cross she wore around her neck on a delicate chain, and she carried a small green leather bag under her arm. She walked quickly into the center of the store, and nobody said a word to her. Charlie stopped slicing the pork chops he was cutting for Helen Anderson and wiped the blade of his knife with a clean cloth. It glinted in the light as he laid it quietly on the counter. Will, sitting in his chair with the boy on his lap, finally broke the silence and the stillness. He greeted her softly as he stood up and put the boy down on the floor. Morning, Sylvan. How are you doing? How's Bodie? We're fine, she said. It's lovely. Everything's just the same as always. She had a sweet, girlish voice. She couldn't have been much more than a teenager. She didn't sound like she was from around Brownsburg. She spoke in some faraway accent, like a princess or an actress. She took off her dark glasses, very slowly, bowing her head to do it, gentle graceful. She looked up at Will briefly, nodding hello. Then she just stood, and she turned her head slowly to stare at Charlie Beale. Five seconds, ten maybe, no more, but it seemed forever. His hands were on the counter. He felt the urge to do something, to wipe the butcher block, to jingle the change in his pocket, but nobody moved, and he didn't either. May I help you, ma'am? Is there... No, no, thank you. I'm not hungry for anything. She spoke 
with a sort of fake English accent Charlie had only heard in the movies, those glowing women on the screen with the sparkling hair and the black lips. Five seconds. At the moment. Not hungry at the moment. Then she turned and headed for the door. The bell tinkled as she left, and she shielded her eyes for a brief moment in the sudden brightness of the street. She put her dark glasses back on and let herself into a black Cadillac, started the engine, and drove away. He wanted to look. You could tell he wanted to follow this woman with his eyes. A quick light came into them, but then it was out, just like that. And he went on with the next customer. He came awake like a man who'd been in a deep sleep and was late getting where he was going. His blade sliced into a chop. The ladies began their chatter again, watching him not watch her leave. That woman, Will said, walks like a farmer. How's that? asked Charlie. She walks, said Will, waiting. Like she's got a bale of hay on one hip and a bale of alfalfa on the other. And when she walks, he paused for effect, she's rotating the crops. And all the women laughed, even though they'd heard the same old joke since they were girls. And Charlie laughed, too. Although he found the joke vulgar when he thought of the way it didn't even begin to describe the majesty and poetry of that girl's way of walking. As if the movie were over, everything went back into motion, the ladies chattering as though she'd never been there, Charlie finishing the chops and wrapping them neatly in clean white paper he ripped from a roll over his head, his hands shaking, his old body electric beneath his clothes, the boy and Will sitting again and playing at Cat's Cradle, the chair creaking as the father and the son intertwined the string in more and more complex ways. Poor Selvin, said Eleanor Cook. Poor Bodie Glass, you mean, said Mary Page. He sure got what he paid for. If you lie down with the dogs, you get up with the fleas, Eleanor said, ending it, and all the ladies nodded in agreement. But Charlie Beale had heard her name, Sylvan Glass. She went off in his head and his heart like a firecracker on the Fourth of July. Something dazzling, something stupendous, something finally, that was wholly and mysteriously wonderful.